Hello, my name is Eva, and welcome to part two of the Black Dinner of 1440. Last time, we left off after the murder of James I in the tunnels beneath the Priory of Perth. James I was put to death because of his reckless spending and his attempts at curbing the power of the clans, the powerful clan Douglas not least. The king was survived by his six-year-old son, who was crowned James II in March 1437, one month after his father had been killed. As I touched upon last time, James II's mother, Joan Buford, had been injured in the attack that left James I dead, and though she got her brutal revenge on the killers, the royal council, with Clan Douglas at its head, prevented her from being appointed sole regent, that is to say to rule Scotland until such time as her son came of age. She was allowed to take charge of her sons and lived with him at Stirling Castle, but the rule of Scotland was put in the hands of James's paternal cousin, Archibald Douglas, who was awarded the position of Lieutenant General of Scotland. And so we start this part two in 1439. Archibald Douglas, the fifth Earl of Douglas, who by several accounts was an able, if harsh, lieutenant general, has died of a fever. James II is still only eight years old, and it is imperative to find another nobleman who can govern Scotland until the king comes of age. But a huge part of the Scottish nobility is far from Scotland, fighting and dying on the French side of the Hundred Years' War against the English. Bitter, bloody and brutal feuds amongst the powerful clans have also contributed to the death of many senior noblemen who leave behind underage heirs. So what to do? Well, in the summer of 1439, a compromise is reached, in which the governance of Scotland is given over to two ambitious men, the Lord Chancellor of Scotland, William Crichton, Keeper of Edinburgh Castle, and the Warden of Stirling Castle, Alexander Livingstone, whose power is derived from the very fact that he holds the castle in which the young King James resides. This was the best the nobles of Scotland could come up with, but it left Clan Douglas out of power, something they were not willing to silently accept. Joan Buford, mother to King James, had by this time remarried not out of love, but to secure allies, and she had remarried James Stuart, whose family was closely aligned to Clan Douglas. They resided in Stirling Castle, but by the late summer of 1439, Joan Buford and her allies, the Stuarts and the Douglases, conspired to remove the king from Stirling Castle and from the clutches of Livingston, and place him in a Douglas-held castle. Had they succeeded, Livingston would have been without his source of power, 
that of having the young king under his roof. And, well, an ambitious man like Livingstone would have none of that. Moving with deadly swiftness, he separated Joan Buford from James Stewart, putting the former under house arrest and throwing Stewart into the dungeons of Stirling Castle. With no means of alerting their allies, these two were trapped. Joan Buford was forced to give up the formal custody of her son and her dowry was taken from her to be used for the maintenance of her son. I mean, how could she say no to that? And Stuart, he was forced to formally renounce any ambitions he may have had in trying to secure power for himself through the young king. So, the Stuarts were out of the way but their allies, Clan Douglas, seethed with anger. They tried, unsuccessfully, to have Livingston removed, and there was a great deal of talk of gathering an army and marching on Stirling Castle. Threats were spouted hither and yon, but it remained as talk, for Clan Douglas was afflicted with the same predicament as so many noble families in Scotland. Their leader, Archibald Douglas, had died and had left behind a mere boy who was governed by men of disparate ambitions. So no uniform or overwhelming threats emerged from the Douglas side and it was within this context that an invitation on the young king's behalf was sent to the 16-year-old William Douglas, the now 6th Earl of Douglas. The invitation was to meet and eat at Edinburgh Castle with the young king. Initially, the invitation was met with a great deal of suspicion from the side of the Douglases. All were in agreement that the invitation was probably Livingston's idea rather than the conception of the nine-year-old king. And who was he anyway, a mere warden of Stirling Castle, to summon a Douglas? Well, he was the warden who had dared to imprison their ally, James Stuart, though in truth, Stuart had been released by 1414. But, and this was the crux of the matter, while the Douglas clan might have been willing to parley with the young king, he was their kin after all. The king was still under physical control of Livingston and of William Crichton, who were most decidedly not kin or friend of Clan Douglas. Well, that is to say, Livingston and Crichton were not friends of that branch of Clan Douglas who sided with the young Earl. For as I mentioned in part one, Clan Douglas fought as much amongst themselves as they fought external enemies. And Crichton and Livingston had managed to form an alliance a very uneasy and quite secretive alliance with James Douglas, great-uncle to the young king. Outwardly, of course, James Douglas supported Clan Douglas, 
but inwardly he supported himself and his own immediate family. James Douglas joined in the assurances to Clan Douglas that all the young king wanted was to meet his kin, the young Earl of Douglas, and work towards a strong alliance. It was said that in the end, it was the young Earl himself who decided to travel to Edinburgh Castle. I would speak with our king and assure him that he need fear no harm from me. A promise of safe passage had been given, which was generous and necessary, for Clan Douglas had not become the most powerful clan in Scotland without making enemies from the Lothian to the border. And so it was, in November 1440, William Douglas set out for Edinburgh Castle, and perhaps he set out from Hermitage Castle, the Douglas stronghold in the border regions. He was accompanied by his 12-year-old brother, David, and his guardian, Sir Malcolm Fleming. Nothing is known of their journey to Edinburgh, but one might assume that no news is good news. According to the Oceanleck Chronicle, the only contemporary account of these events, William, his brother David, and Sir Malcolm Fleming arrived at Edinburgh Castle on November the 24th, 1440, and were received with due reverence by William Crichton, keeper of the castle, and they were led to the formidable David's Tower, a keep within Edinburgh Castle, named for the son of Robert the Bruce, that hero who had united and won Scotland from England. The customs of a host receiving a guest were played out. One might assume that William Douglas was given a warm seat beside the roaring fire, while their cloaks were laid out to dry before the hearth. Then the young king entered the tower and cordially greeted his guests. It was said that the nine-year-old King James was charmed by William Douglas and his younger brother David. Finally, a sumptuous dinner was served and musicians played merry tunes for the whole company that included Livingston and William Crichton. Now, whether James Douglas, the great-uncle to the king, was present is unclear. However, what is recorded was that at some point during the evening, the music faded and a single flute could be heard as one last dish was carried into the hall. Crichton's men, who had been waiting outside the hall, entered, closing the doors behind them, while the last dish was set on the table in front of William Douglas. According to histories written many years later, the dish was the severed head of a black bull, an old symbol of impending death. Sir Malcolm Fleming, the guardian to the young earl, leapt up, but he was too late. William Douglas, his brother David, and Malcolm Fleming were seized by Crichton's men, and over the futile protests of the young king, they were dragged outside to the back of Castle Rock, on which Edinburgh Castle is built. And there, in the darkness of the night, they were accused of high treason 
a crime that bears only one punishment, death. William Douglas, the sixth Earl of Douglas, his brother David, were beheaded on the very night of their arrival at Edinburgh Castle. Their guardian, Sir Malcolm Fleming, survived a week of torture until he too was killed. These devastating events that would some 40 years later be given the name The Black Dinner caused an uproar. Now, while we in our modern day and age often accrue to the words that life in earlier times must have been nasty, brutish and short, the killing of these two innocent children was still seen as shocking by contemporaries. And that is not even taking into account the political mayhem that might have unfolded. Unsurprisingly, Clan Douglas gathered in force and laid siege to Edinburgh Castle. Crichton and his men were now surrounded, and fighting for his political survival, Crichton handed over Edinburgh Castle to the king. A very deft move, for now it meant that the Douglases besieging the castle were now not besieging him, but their own king, and thereby committing treason if they continued their siege, which they did not in the end. Frighten's life was spared, and he went on to have a solid career under the protection of James I, and he died peacefully in 1454. His ally, his co-conspirator and his co-regent, Alexander Livingstone, also survived and shockingly became an ally of Clan Douglas, with whom he then conspired with against Crichton, as Crichton, in the later stages of his life, rose in prominence in the household of James II. Livingston died in 1451 by means unknown. And what about James Douglas? Kin, if not friend, of the young Earl of Douglas, whom he had assured safe passage to Edinburgh Castle while he secretly sided with Livingston and Crichton. James Douglas was the ultimate benefactor of the Black Dinner because at the death of his great-nephew, the earldom of Douglas fell to him, and James Douglas moved quickly to secure his holdings, amongst them his holdings in Lanarkshire in the central lowlands of Scotland, dangerously close to the holdings of the king. In later life, he politically neglected the Douglas holdings in the border regions, the events of the Black Dinner had threatened many of the old alliances that the Douglas clan held, for they were marred by the very real suspicions that James Douglas had in no small part encouraged the killing of his great-nephew in order to gain the earldom for himself. And ultimately, he would enjoy the earldom for only three years before dying in 1443. And so we come to James II, the nine-year-old king who witnessed the events of the Black Dinner and who was said to have pleaded for the life of his cousin, William Douglas. Well, 
James II came of age in 1449, and from then on, he continued the Crown's love-hate relationship with Clan Douglas. Initially allying with Clan Douglas, he and the Douglases wrought a revenge that could be seen, heard, and felt on House Livingston for their complicity in the Black Dinner. But as I mentioned, things turned around for Livingston ended up allying with Clan Douglas against Crichton. But for all that, by 1452, James II had tired of the Livingstons and the Crichtons, and not least had tired immensely of the relentless ambitions of Clan Douglas, which saw them forever fighting their neighbours and thus unsettling the politics of Scotland. In 1452, Clan Douglas was led by another William, this time a William, 8th Earl of Douglas, who through marriage had gained so much land that his holdings rivaled those of the kings. The relations between Clan Douglas and the Crown were by now reserved, at best, in truth, cold, and always mired in distrust. But when the Earl of Douglas in early 1452 received a king's summons to Stirling Castle, he could hardly refuse. Under promise of safe conduct, the Earl of Douglas was received at Stirling Castle by a very, very angry James II on the 22nd of February, 1452. The Earl had no sooner arrived when James II demanded that he renounce those of his allies with whom the Earl had banded together against allies of the Crown. The Earl said no, and when he continued to refuse the King's demands, James II, in sheer anger, unsheathed his dagger and stabbed William Douglas 26 times right there and then. According to the Oshinlek Chronicle, the men surrounding the king did nothing to stop him, and instead threw the body of William, Earl of Douglas, out of the window when the stabbing was done. So, King James, who twelve years earlier had witnessed another William Douglas dragged off to his death, he had been shocked then, but it seemed he had seen and learned a very questionable lesson. And though this deed did taint his name, his overall reputation stayed intact, and chroniclers wrote of him as a very energetic man. Well, stabbing someone 26 times certainly does crave energy. And by and large, he was deemed a very successful ruler who died in 1460. As this telling shows, the power of Clan Douglas was not immediately weakened by the Black Dinner, and they continued to play a contentious part of Scottish and later British history. Though they never rose to the ultimate height of power again, they continued a very close alliance with the Crown, and in fact, on the 12th of September 2022, a descendant of these Douglases, Alexander Douglas Hamilton, placed the crown of Scotland on the coffin of Queen Elizabeth II 
during the memorial service in St. Giles's Cathedral. He was the one to do this as the acknowledged premier peer in Scotland. So, for all the beheadings, stabbings, sieges and wars, the Black Dinner put to death two Douglases only to elevate another, and through more stabbings, more beheadings and more wars, the Douglases secured their name in history and secured that they never disappeared. So this was a recounting of the historical context in which the Black Dinner occurred. For me, the telling of history is always the telling of the before and after. It is not enough to simply recount the gory details of the one event, the one night. I always want to know what were the circumstances that preceded it and influenced the events that then unfolded. I really hope you like this type of history telling too. If you liked this episode, please leave a like as it really helps the visibility of this podcast as it grows. And until next time, I have been Eva and thank you so much for listening.